So, um, why go on pilgrimage? Um, geomancy, transformational powers of sacred places in Tibetan Buddhism and Pern. I'm not going to be saying anything about what Pern is. Um, for present purposes, uh, just think of it as a branch of Tibetan Buddhism. I know that Bonpas will hate me for saying that, but uh, functionally, that's all we need to know for the for the time being. Um, so I'm going to talk through these two things. Uh, first of all, the geomantic aspect of uh, of the Bon religion uh, of um, sacred places uh, in Tibet. Um, why do people go on pilgrimage? Because there's something special about the places that they go to. Uh, and then um, we're going to see something about the way in which uh, Tibetans believe that the sacred places are not only transformed by the saints, but it's a kind of dialectical process uh, that the, of the events that's imbued uh, in the land uh, can then continue to generate good things which can benefit uh, visitors, uh, ordinary visitors and uh, saints uh, in the future. Um, Now, Tibetan pilgrimage um, is a very diverse. You can look at it from lots of different angles. Um, one of the things that um, David and I briefly discussed earlier was uh, considering pilgrimage from three different aspects in the way that he himself has considered uh, religion. Uh, that is to say, from the societal aspect, the soteriological aspect, and the um, instrumental uh, aspect. So I won't actually categorize the talk according to three uh, to these three um, uh, schemes. Elements of these three will become apparent as I talk. So let's just um, sort out some vocabulary uh, to begin with. Um, well, uh, uh, let's take a look at some of the literature first of all. So pilgrimage, there is a corpus of Tibetan literature uh, of pilgrimage literature, which we which I'll look at briefly uh, in a short while. But there are also all sorts of other um, domains of literature which can inform um, So there's an awful lot in the literature of sacred landscape, uh, which is mainly what I'll be talking about, I suppose. Um, then in the lives of saints, in hagiographies, uh, real characters, mythical characters, uh, there's a lot about uh, the way in which their spiritual activities are grounded in uh, in certain locations. Uh, then there are more standard biographies. Uh, Tibetans spent an awful lot of time traveling to um, sacred places all over Tibet, and they record their, their, their pilgrimages in their biographies and autobiographies. Uh, then there's a more secular variant of this, which we can call travelogue, and um, finally, there is tantric literature. Um, there are other areas of literature besides, and I'm not going to be looking at all of these, but uh, um, I'll dip into some of them periodically to see what they what they can tell us. So let's begin with the uh, the idea of sacred lands. Um, I was the last person, I think, to give my title to uh, the series. And by the time I got there, I saw that um, my friend and colleague Hildegard Deenberger had already 
given a title that included sacred landscape. So I felt a bit bad about using that. However, sacred landscape will uh, feature quite prominently in what I'm going to be saying today, and I'm sure I'll be treating it in a very different from way from the way uh, Hilda will be. So um, I haven't got too many qualms about that. What I have got more qualms about is the fact that this is being recorded, and a lot of what I'm going to be uh, saying um, is um, taken from other talks, which are probably also online. So um, if you have a sense of deja vu, um, forgive me, but uh, I think we all probably do this sometimes. Um, OK, so landscape. Let's get the vocabulary. Um, term for pilgrimage I'm coming to in a moment, and it's based on the Tibetan term for place. Tibetan has several words for place, uh, but the most formal one perhaps is this term ne. What's in brackets is the, the, the Tibetan orthography. So ne means place, not just any place, but usually a rather special place. And the standard term for pilgrimage in Tibet is nekor. Kor means to go around. So nekor is going around places. And you don't just go to one place when you go on pilgrimage. You stop off at lots, even if you have a, a single goal, which could be, for example, um, the, the main cathedral in Lhasa, the Jokhang. Um, you will almost certainly take in quite a lot of other monasteries, sacred mountains, uh, sacred lakes and so forth on your way. And the act of actually visiting a sacred location is ne jal. Jal is a humilific term meaning to, to meet, to encounter, to visit. And you would use this term, for example, the Lama. You don't just meet, um, encounter a Lama, you jal uh, a Lama. So uh, there is a certain reverence towards these places insofar as they are um, insofar as they are sacred. Another thing, that, um, probably the only anthropological component of this talk, is the, um, uh, the dialect of space and place, which is an interesting discussion in quite a lot of the secondary literature, anthropological literature, archaeological literature, geographical literature, and, uh, and so on. Uh, much to be said about this. Um, in anthropology, they're used as follows. A space is a set of coordinates on a map, and a place is what you do with it. It's the culturally meaningful space. And um, just to confuse matters, these terms are used in exactly the opposite way by geographers. So before you um, read any piece of work that uses place and space, just remember which particular genre it is you're, you're reading. Um, so there are various views about this. Um, one view that's come to prominence in, in recent times is um, that the, the relationship between humans and their physical environment is not one of subject and object. Um, the distinction implicit in this is false, and we should understand that uh, these two, that is to say a person and the place that he or she inhabits, are mutually constitutive. This is what we might call a strong phenomenological point of view, and it's advocated especially in the work of Tim Ingold. Reference will be coming in just a moment. And he proposes that an individual's knowledge of a place derives from physical interaction with it, and not from theoretical constructs independent of any such uh, direct experience. Uh, this has been um, 
to my mind, fatally contested by certain other authors, um, notably Chris Gosden at the Archaeology Department in Oxford. And these are uh, three references. If you want to look into this further, uh, there's Tim Ingle's uh, presentation of the, the issues, Chris Gosden's uh, take on it. And um, uh, just to mention somebody else who was at the uh, at ISCA, uh, Kabir Haimsat, who will be known to some of you, who wrote a wonderful um, uh, doctoral thesis, which he hasn't yet published. And it's the, uh, what should we say, this, uh, it's a pilgrimage in the sense that it's the daily circumambulation of Lhasa, uh, the capital of Tibet. Um, and uh, he explores in this uh, thesis the um, the usefulness of uh, some of these uh, phenomenological uh, positions. Anyway, it's not published, but it should be in, in the ISCO library somewhere, or at least um, in the board or online. Um, <clears throat> now, I'm going to talk about what we mean by sacred landscape, first of all. By talking not about landscape, I'm going to talk about cloudscape. I've used this example before, so if it's uh, familiar to you again, apologies. So we look at this, we don't see a cloud. We see something that the cloud looks like. Yeah. And it could be an animal. That, for example, or even this. And of course, what I'm doing is giving a, a visual presentation of this very well-known passage in Hamlet where Hamlet's talking to Polonius and he says, he yonder cloud that's almost in shape of a camel by the mass and tis like a camel indeed. Methinks it is a weasel. It is backed like a weasel or like a whale, very like a whale. So this is a cloudscape. That is to say, these are not camels and weasels and whales out there. These are clouds that remind us of these things. And that will serve as an introduction to what we mean by landscape. A landscape originally did not mean what's out there. It's not the topography. It's the interpretation of it. It's a representation of it. And it comes into um, English in the uh, 16th, in, in the 17th century, actually, to mean a painted representation of an, uh, something that's out there. And what's out there, this topography, this geography, can be interpreted artistically, and of course we're not just going to be talking about art, uh, can be interpreted in numerous different ways. And here's a nice little uh, example of that. There was a photograph that was taken by uh, an artist named Thomas Gardner. And then he made a painting of this and he asked some of his colleagues to make paintings of it. So here you have the closest thing to the topography that's out there. And then here is one of his colleagues' paintings. A painting of the same scene by himself. And by a third person. And you can see that these representations, these landscapes of that topography are all very different. And one of the mistakes that uh, a lot of people has ma have made is to assume that understandings, interpretations of what out there are universal. So you have Mace writing in the 
1930s, that certain canons of beauty are unalterable, taken generally. You and I, plain men, admire very much what plain men admired in Chaucer's day, Shakespeare's day, Wordsworth's day. How wrong. <clears throat> uh, Joshua Poole, writing in the 17th century, described mountains as warts, wens, blisters, tumour, impostumes. And Samuel Johnson, who was no lover of landscape either, referred to the Pyrenees as uncouth, huge, monstrous excrescences of nature being nothing but craggy stones. So there is certainly no universal canon of uh, what constitutes a beautiful landscape. And uh, Thomas Burnett um, visiting, I think, um, and hating them. So he visited the Alps in 1971. Uh, These mountains are placed in no order with one another that can either respect use or beauty. There is nothing in nature more shapeless and an old rock or mountain. If you look upon an heap of them together or a mountainous country, they are the greatest examples of confusion that we know in nature. So in a sense, Tibetans agree with Burnett but they get around it by imposing order on it. In other words, turning what's out there into a landscape. And it's this process of landscaping that I'm going to be talking about. In other words, how to infuse uh, a topography with meaning, how to turn space into place. Now, one of the ways in which this is done, and you find this in a lot of uh, prescriptive and descriptive pilgrimage literature, is through resemblances. So people will find um, visual resemblances in the, uh, in, the, in the land. So here you have Mount Kailash, a very famous pilgrimage destination in the far west of Tibet, which is considered to have an anti-clockwise swastika. You can just sort of make it out. Yeah, so here's a swastika that's actually been inscribed near the mountain. And you can see it there. And of course, these it's believed to be a true swastika that's spot occurred because of the activities of saints so on. I'll give you a few examples of these because I think they are uh, they are quite interesting it's how the uh, the landscape is read in a certain way and this will take us into the uh, the whole domain of geomancy <clears throat> so here you have a, a hill it's a once inhabited hill but again in a pilgrimage guide it will say you will come across a rock that looks like a torma that is to say, a sacrificial cake. Right? So the images that are chosen belong to the world that you're trying to realize via this landscape. Here's another one. Um, it appears in a list of animals, uh, Buddhist animals that dot the landscape, and obviously this is an elephant. Why an elephant? There are no elephants in Tibet, because the elephant is from India, and India is the land of Buddhism. So it's a way converting the meaningless geography that's out there into a Buddhist landscape. Here's another one. Uh, take a look up here. This is again in northern Mustang near the Tibetan border. So there's a strange shaped hill which is understood in certain books to be the hat of uh, one of the great saints in Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Padmasambhava, an 8th century figure. Um, very Close to this hat, there is this, which is considered in the guidebooks to be the saddle 
of Padmasambhava. You can see the resemblance there. And then moving up the scale rather in terms of uh, the spiritual hierarchy at a sacred lake in uh, northern Tibet, a place called Namso, now about a day's drive north of Lhasa, uh, there's this pair of stones which in the um, pilgrimage guides to this area are described as being the uh, the tantric divine pair um, Chakrasambhara and his female consort Vajravarahi uh, in sexual union like this. Okay, so this is straight, uh, how they are understood. But of course, not everybody sees the same landscape in the same way. So members of a different school of Buddhism or the Bon religion would see this uh, pair as something different. And indeed, we do have a different representation of it now. The whole area has been converted into a tourist resort. And you have these two rocks again. Uh, there's now a road through there. It's a tourist destination. And of course, because Tibet is one of the uh, it's one of the minority areas, uh, it's um, it, it's the sort of place that's associated with uh, romance, femininity and so on. So uh, now these two are no longer understood. These two rocks are no longer understood as being a divine couple. They are simply the couple stone. So it's a romantic destination. This is where um, newlywed couples go on their honeymoon, for example. And there are many such examples of the the, the, the politicization and modernization of uh, classical land. This is what's sometimes called contested uh, landscapes. But um, in these uh, prescriptive texts, when you visit a landscape like well, a, a sacred mountain like this, a mountain I'm going to be talking about more presently, uh, the Bon Mountain of Kongpo in southeast uh, Tibet, um, uh, there are referenced references to um, locations. So it will say, for example, rocks and crags which have the appearance of the signs of the five Buddha families, swords, mirrors, and the eight auspicious symbols. Again, very, uh, very Buddhist. Um, an area which has a village, I quote, that looks like a mirror, a drum, and a flat bell. A flat area of hill which looks like a mandala, a rock which resembles a three-edged blazing jewel, and so on and so on. I mean, we could uh, go on at great length. Some of them are quite inventive. Crags that give the impression of sculptures. A turquoise-coloured rock which looks like a lady hiding herself and laughing. There, you know, you can see that the author is actually perhaps getting a little bit bored with the Buddhist imagery and uh, um, and letting his imagination run a little wilder. So it's not just particular locations uh, that are understood as resembling divinities, sacred objects and so forth. It's Tibet. According to a very old idea, uh, the land of Tibet is a supine demoness. There's been a, quite a great deal of literature about this and that this demoness had to be subdued, not killed, but subdued because she was hostile to Buddhism. Uh, but she has a great deal of inherent power and that this power, if rightly harnessed, could make it make the land um, propitious for the introduction of Buddhism. So this is an older representation of the this demoness and this is a more recent one. And so it's a, it's a, an enduring theme. And this takes us nicely on to 
uh, what we might regard as a more systematic representation of uh, the landscape um, through the domain of geomancy. Now, uh, I must immediately acknowledge um, my friend and colleague Petra Maurer, uh, who kindly uh, sent me copies of these images, which are published and I'm afraid I haven't got the details of the publication with me at the moment. Anyway, it's a Tibetan geomantic manual. And what's, we're, we're going to look at some of these. And um, the point is that it's not just a haphazard, um, random reading of the landscape. There is actually a process whereby people can be trained. They can be taught see the landscape in a certain way and to interpret it. And this is uh, the whole domain of geomancy, which in Tibetan is called satye, uh, which literally would mean diagnosis of place, sa, place or land, tie, diagnosis. Um, and I'll just read you the translation. So these are hills. And this is what you have to try and imagine. Does it look like this hill? Does it look like this one? Does it look like this? And if it looks like any of these, then um, uh, you act accordingly. You build your monastery there or you don't build your monastery there. You don't build a house there, whatever. Okay, so this is how you should understand. It's very much based, I think, on, on a Chinese tradition. I don't know if anybody's done a systematic uh, comparison of feng shui and uh, Tibetan sati, but anyway, this is the Tibetan uh, interpretation of it. So here, uh, the one on the left, it says uh, this is a, a sinmo. Uh, so this is a sinmo demon, demoness, waving her like the sharp edge of a weapon, like a raised flag, like the spokes of a wheel. Uh, so this is uh, like the um, the sharp edge of a weapon. No, sorry, this is the raised flag. This is the spokes of a wheel. This is the face of an angry demon. These are, are the major, what they call the sada, uh, the earth enemies. Uh, and then it lists the harm that these do. Anybody who builds a house there, the lives of the people will be short, there will be diseases and many hindrances, there will be outbreaks of contagious diseases. So the whole point is to avoid places like this. You know, they're useful for certain types of meditation, for example, and perhaps for placing a cemetery or some such thing. Um, but it will not heal your illnesses. And since we're partly talking about healing, this is certainly a, a consideration. It will make them worse. Um, and uh, you will probably die young and lose your fortune. Uh, whereas on the other hand, a mountain that looks like people debating, here we have two people debating, uh, athletes fighting or fighting lions, oh sorry, these are also enemies, And but you will have different results. So if you build a settlement here, then there will be a lot of gossip, lots of diseases, quarrels and fights. And then if the upper and lower part of the mountain appear to be separated, uh, they appear to be ruptured, then etc etc there will be similar things so let's take a look at a few more of these these are quite interesting what have we got here yeah so if you have a forest in the front side and a depression uh, if the peak resembles a sitting teacher and the upper part looks as if it was encircled by his disciples this is good if it looks like a king sitting on a throne encircled by his vassals, this is good. If it looks like vultures descending on a pass, uh, this is also uh, encircled by many vulture chicks, 
this is auspicious. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to go through all the examples, but uh, you know, they're magnificent. But you can see that um, they're not vague, they're very precise. You know, it's a king sitting surrounded by his, uh, um, surrounded by his courtiers, uh, vultures and chicks and, uh, and so forth. So you need you know, to have a, a trained visual imagination um, that coincides with the visual imagination of your colleagues from the same school in order to reach a consensus about the, uh, the significance of the place. Um, okay. Okay, I won't go through all these. I'll leave that out as well. Okay, so another way of reading um, meaning into uh, a place is by naming. And in this case, you have uh, the chaplain, not, not really a Buddhist chaplain in this case, of a local duke in a provincial Tibetan area, um, who invokes the territorial gods. And, <coughs> excuse me. Most of these gods don't actually have a physical form. They are simply the place itself. They are the names of the place itself uh, that are divine at a very low level. These are the representations of the divinities. So when they are invited to come and be uh, feasted, uh, they come and occupy these um, effigies, these dough effigies that are situated here. And once they are there, then he will feed them with beer and he will feed them with uh, with various other things. He used to pre uh, perform animal sacrifices for them, but that is now uh, discontinued. Now, the, uh, the point is that this text is divided geographically. So it goes in a kind of spiral. And it starts off in the far west of Tibet and then this great big sweep around, it invites all the gods of Western Tibet, of Ngari, uh, the gods of Northern Tibet, the gods of Eastern Tibet, and then that's phase one. And then you have a sort of inner circle, invites those divinities, and finally um, he homes in on the uh, his local village and in all the different categories of divinities, you know, the Hla, the Lu, the certain spirits, the warrior gods, the demons, um, uh, the, the, the royal divinities, as they call them, uh, the earth spirits, and feasts them. So what this invocation does is to create a kind of imaginary map, and it situates the speaker's village at the center of the cultural area that is West Central Tibet and beyond that, Greater Tibet. Okay, so it's a kind of zooming in; it's a spiraling into uh, uh, to his local community. You know, it's it's sacred at only a very at a very low level, to put it that way. And what he's invoking are these creatures, these things called sadak. Sa means place, and dak means um, owner or lord. And it's also so these are the the divine lords of the soil, but it's a term that's also used for Landlord. So you can talk about your, your kangdak, your house owner, or your sadak, your, your landowner. Yeah, so, and this is exactly how these types of divinities are understood. And in the process of the uh, invocation, this is what the priest does. Um, he re-establishes this bond with them. It is a kind of rental agreement uh, that the divinities of the soil are the owners, they are the hosts, and we humans are the guests. And he asks them, continue to extend their hospitality 
and uh, I mean, you can read it. And then he um, he pays the rent, which is, uh, you know, the, the beer and the reverence and the uh, and the food. And then he sends them back because you don't want the landlords hanging around your house all the time. Yeah. So uh, and then there is this rather nice uh, request for support. Uh, be our companions. If we go on the crags, be our steps and ladders. If we pass through water, be our bridges. If we walk on trails, etc., etc. Okay. Now this can go a little bit further to talk about the societal aspect of it. Here we've seen the way in which this virtual pilgrimage around Tibet. It's he, you know, he acts as a kind of psychopomp. You know, he travels around uh, in spirit. Um, but it can go a little bit further by really establishing. Um, a political identity. And the example I would like to take here is not of pilgrimage literature, but of a long song cycle. It's supposed to be a thousand and eight songs uh, from uh, a southern Tibetan principality called Porong. And they have uh, the song cycle called Gyalche, which means the, the victory song. And the men and women you know, dress up in their finery and they uh, sing these alternating uh, songs together. And there are many of these, but the opening song locates them. Now, most of the community lives in exile. Uh, they've moved into, uh, they've moved to Kathmandu. Quite a lot of them are in Switzerland, in fact. But even there, whenever they uh, start the cycle, they begin with this particular song, which locates them. It extols the area in which they live. So to the west of the village, Gangri Bönchen seems to be an offering of heaped flour. And this is Gangri Bunchen. This is the uh, the main snow mountain over to the west. Uh, to the north of the village, the red hill looks like the offering of a mandala. It looks like a monk wearing robes because indeed to the north of the village, there is this uh, uh, rather old monastery, now quite badly destroyed, um, called uh, Porong Pemo Chudding. So to the west, you have the Lord. To the north, you have the, uh, the, the this main monastery. And then the song continues to the east of the village. I won't show you images of the, the, the landscape here, but there are the blue slate hills who are the young men dressed in monks robes. And then to the south of the village, the Mount Tishapangma, the upland meadows are sunlit and it seems to be the splendid fathers and mothers and the children all gathered here. So essentially you have the whole community divided up into its major components. Uh, the priesthood, the rulers, the warrior force, and then uh, the civil community, and projected onto this landscape. And it's like a sort of magic carpet that they can roll up and take with them all around the world wherever they go, and then reproduce their landscape when they begin the set of songs that somehow expresses their uh, social identity. And I'm sure that we would be able to find many other communities that have uh, something similar. Okay, so another term for the sadak, the owners of the soil, is shidak, which just means the owners of the place. But after a while, historically, what tends to happen is that these um, sadaks, which are essentially just names, they're names of places, they are nomina, and the nomina, as we know, classically, uh, turn into noumena, they turn into spiritual entities and they become yulza and the yulza uh, or sometimes called uh, okay uh, yulza uh, literally uh, in spelled slightly differently it can be the root of the place the root of the land so the yul is not just a place it's a politicized place 
um, it's a place of any dimension, a political place of any size. So it can mean England or it can be a village of eight houses, but it is essentially a political unit. So from being something out there inhabiting the, the landscape, these divinities or these earth owners become divine. They start to take on personalities. They start to take on an iconography uh, in the literature. So there's a kind of uh, development which I want to I want to look at. How does this happen? It happens through a process uh, called dulwa, which is one of the most wonderfully polysemous terms in Tibetan. It can mean to pacify or to subdue. It can be to preach, to convert, to cure, to conquer, to cultivate. So, you know, if you go to a, a forested area and you decide to make a field, then that would be dulwa. You cultivate the place, you tame it. And it also refers as a noun to the Buddhist monastic disciplinary code, the Vinaya. And this is what happens to these meaningless landscapes. It's a process of dulwa. It's a process of conversion to a Buddhist open landscape. Let's take one particular example. So here we have uh, this rather beautiful mountain in the north of Tibet um, with this uh, lake, Namso, Heaven Lake. And the divinity of this mountain is envisaged like this as a, a warrior divinity on a white horse. And according to the legend, when uh, Padmasambhava, the, supposedly the founder of Buddhism in Tibet, came to the country in the 8th century, one of the first things he did was to subjugate Nianchen Tangla, who was the ruler of all the indigenous gods of Tibet. So he subjugated them, and from then on, they are no longer hostile to Buddhism. They become minor Buddhist divinities. And as a process of this conversion, these mountains, which were regarded as warrior mountains, which used to receive blood sacrifices and uh, and so forth. I mean, I, I could have included um, descriptions and presentations of quite a number of these, uh, what we might call pagan rituals, but I haven't included them here. Uh, they get converted. Obviously, it's not the mountain itself that's, although this is how it's represented in the literature, it's people's perceptions of it. You know, so from being a Yulza, it becomes a Nadi. It becomes, a Ri is a mountain, and a Ne is a power place. So it's a mountain that is a power place. And from now on, these are the kinds of places to which one can go on pilgrimage and perform the things that one does on pilgrimage. For example, circumambulation. You don't normally circumambulate the site of a Yulza, a territorial, but you do circumambulate it when this divinity has been converted into some major divinity of the of the Bon religion or the Buddhist religion. Uh, again, another concrete example. Here we have a um, one of the highest mountains in the world, which, because she's too modest to mention it, was first climbed by Hildegard Diemberger's father. Um, so it's in Nepal, it's over 8,000 meters, and it is, as we see, a great heap of snow and rock. But that's only because we see it with external vision. If we see it with proper, educated, spiritual inner vision, then it would look completely different. And according to one um, pilgrimage account, there is uh, a Lama in the, 18th, in the 19th century, specifically in 1863, 
meditating in his cave near this mountain. And he sees a bright light and he hears a voice speaking to him from a waterfall. And the speaker introduces herself as the Dakini, the goddess of the place, and she invites him to a feast. She emerges from the water. She's wearing not very much, um, some jewels, and then they set off. Uh, they reach this mountain, which is called Muligang in the text, in just an instant. And then he suddenly realizes that it looks different from this stone and snow massif that he's used to seeing. The sky is thick with parasols, victory banners, rainbows, Buddhas, llamas, incense smoke, wheels, conches, and everywhere you can hear the sound of bells, drums, and mantras being intoned. And there are lots of other inhabitants. Uh, so there are serpent spirits, earth gods, and, and so on and so forth. And he says that seen with inner vision, this is not just a pile of snow and rock. It is actually Sangdokpalri. Sangdokpalri being uh, the sacred mountain inhabited by none other than Parnasambhava. And this is a representation of it. This is how the mountain would look if we only had the inner vision with which to see it properly. And he duly meets uh, Guru Rinpoche, accompanied by his wives and his many attendants, and receives uh, teachings from him. And among other things, we are told that inside this mountain there is um, a hidden land called Dunglo Jumpa, which has 500 villages. It gathers a harvest without planting, and all its waters are like beer and milk. Its earth is like tsampa and its wood is like meat. So it's, you know, the big rock candy mountain in a, in a rather spiritual uh, perception. And we're also told that at the moment it's hidden, but that it will be opened in the water monkey year of the 20th cycle, which is 2172. And sadly, we won't be around to see it, but our children's children's children will. Anyway, so he writes down what he sees, and this becomes the prescription of how this new pilgrimage place should henceforth be seen. So this is how pilgrimage literature occurs. Somebody has a vision, sees, sees the mountain in a different way, writes it down. Another Lama will then go there, have another vision, and then add to it. So it's a process of accretion of sanctity, uh, whereby these topographic locations turn into um, sacred places. So this is essentially what Thomas Burnett was hoping to see in the Alps in 1671 but he lacked the vision to transform the place into a sacred landscape. Now, one of the important processes for transforming the landscape is, well, okay, these are just some examples of uh, the type of literature I've been talking about. But an important is the representation of uh, the topography as a mandala. And a mandala, well, we don't need to go into too much detail about this, but uh, it's essentially what Giuseppe Tucci called a psychocosmogram. It's a representation of the universe, which is also inherent in oneself. Above all, it's symmetrical, north, south, east, west. Uh, it has an inner circle, it has a neck circle, it has an outer circle, and so forth. So it's a, a symmetrical square surrounded by a circle. And this is henceforth how these mountains are represented in the literature. Um, so uh, there are always four caves or four sets of caves. Uh, there are um, always uh, sacred entrances. There are you know, 
um, four of this uh, uh, and so on. So four, four major streams at each of the four directions and so on. So it doesn't really necessarily correspond to the actual topography, but it's an idealized uh, topography in a mandala. So how is the act of pilgrimage seen? Uh, how do Tibetans envisage the process of going on pilgrimage? And there is a hierarchy of religious activity. You find this in quite a lot of sources, but here I'm citing um, a Bonpo scholar called Tenzin Namdak, who wrote a, a Tibetan work called, which translates as a guide for the blind. And he says that the wonderful thing about the Bonpo and about Buddhism is that there is something for everybody. So if you have the highest spiritual abilities, then you practice this uh, tradition called the Great Perfection. It's the highest regarded as the, you know, the most elite, and it's the sort of SAS of, um, uh, of Tibetan religious practice. And then if you can't quite manage those levels of abstraction and you need kind of uh, ritual props, then you should engage in the higher tantras. And then if you can't deal with this, if you need some uh, order and discipline, uh, then you become a monk, you observe monastic vows. And then if you can't even do that, um, he says, and I quote, merit might also be accumulated by those who are unable to undertake this kind of religious activity by means of the body, the speech and the mind. He gives examples. They should make prostrations to sacred supports. That means um, uh, temples, lamas, sacred mountains and so on. Circumambulate them, make offerings. With their voices, they should recite mantras and sing hymns of praise, and with their minds, they should be faithful and devout and altruistic as far as they can. In order to clear away the defilements of the three spheres of action, uh, they should, with their bodies, visit sources of blessings and places where saints have meditated. And if they have a rough knowledge of the stories behind these holy mountains and visit them, that is a powerful asset for increasing their faith and wishes. And he then goes on to say, um, don't worry too much about the local territorial divinities, just envisage the mountain as one of the great tantric divinities or as the Buddha himself, the, uh, the Bonpo Buddha. Okay, So um, this is how pilgrimage can be perceived. Uh, it's what you do when you can't do anything else, essentially. You know? So it's, it's rather low on the, the hierarchy, but that is not the whole story. Okay, it's uh, uh, the power of these sacred places, the relevance of them for other forms of um, spiritual practice are also uh, are also quite important, and we will see that in just a minute. But let's look at what pilgrims do when they're on pilgrimage, <clears throat> when they're following their, their guidebooks. So they walk around. Uh, in the case of Kailash, for example, this is Mount Kailash. Uh, there is an outer circle, which takes, actually you can do it in a day. It's pretty exhausting, but it can be done. And when you've done that uh, 13 times, then you're entitled to do the inner and then if you like, you can also circumambulate the lake, Lake Manasarova, which I think takes 18 days. I haven't done that. So these are pilgrims from the far east of Tibet who are walking all around the lake, having walked around the mountain. And then as if this were not enough, oh, here we go. So um, there are all kinds of specific things that have to be done at specific locations. So most commonly, as you go over a high pass, you add a white stone to a cairn. Very commonly at pilgrimage places, there will be two rocks which are very close together and you have to try and squeeze through. And if you do manage to squeeze through, then um, you will have an easy time of it 
in the after-death plane, what they call the bardo, after death and before rebirth. Um, but if you're rather over, you know, it's the sort of camel through the eye of the needle thing. And if you can't quite get through, then you know things are going to be a little difficult for you. Um, you can make it more difficult for yourself by prostrating all, all the way around. I met some people who had prostrated all the way from Eastern Tibet, and it had taken them uh, a year and a half, I think, to get to Western Tibet, perhaps even more. And this is treated with some bewilderment by Hindu pilgrims to the area who don't do this. Uh, this is another location, a different mountain, but here this rock on which the pilgrim is sitting is called Dikto Pabsa, which means um, placing uh, um, placing the, the rock on which you place the stones of sin. And so basically you pick up a few stones, you put them on here, and this represents you depositing your sins, leaving your sins behind on the rock before you then go up further onto the mountain into, into purer, uh, more sublime levels on the pilgrimage. And then, you know, there are certain locations. Uh, this is uh, Tetapuri in, in the far west, which have, you know, wonderful um, uh, geomorphological configurations where, again, the prescription will say there are sacred springs here. You must drink the water from this uh, to purify your sins, or you should bathe in the springs to wash away all your sins, as indeed they, they do. You know, hot springs are, they're not just hot springs. They are, they are imbued with uh, spiritual qualities. Okay, so you know these are some of the many things that pilgrims will do when they are on uh, on when they are traveling. Um, there's another genre of literature uh, which we might dip into, and this is travelogue. Um, Giuseppe Tucci, the great Italian uh, Orientalist, um, was rather sniffy about this genre of literature. Uh, he says the itineraries of these Tibetan monks are far from that exactness which we admire in the writings of Chinese travellers. Not only does a great deal of legendary and fantastic elements permeate their descriptions, but the itinerary itself can hardly be followed from one place to another. A little harsh. Um, there are actually quite a number of um, pilgrims uh, who leave accounts that are, are quite accurate. Some, yes, are you know slightly fantastic, but others, you know, you can follow them with a great deal of um, reliability. One person whom Tucci would have approved on is a writer called Katak Zamyak, who wrote a book called A Pilgrim's Diary, uh, Tibet, Nepal and India, 1944 to 1956, which was the subject of the PhD by someone else you may know, Lucia Galli. Um, uh, also not yet been published, but I hope it will be soon. Anyway, he was a very interesting character. And even though he calls his book um, A Pilgrim's Diary, when he in his 49th year set off from his native Eastern Tibet through Central Tibet and to Nepal and India, he documented all sorts of things. Um, superficially, at least ostensibly, it was supposed to be an account of the, the holy places of India. Um, but he's also a very major trader. You know, he was a, an important figure in one of the big trading houses in, in central Tibet. And while he's on pilgrimage, he can't help doubling up his activities with, uh, with other things. So I don't know if I have the quotation in the slide. Yes, here we go. So he gives a description of uh, the holy places of, of um, Varanasi. And then um, the following day, they take a break from their pilgrimizing activities and 
after spending a, a night in a pilgrim's rest house in Varanasi and on the following day, we went to visit the market and the silk factories and relaxed a little bit. Then we returned and in the evening bought tickets for a train that left at 11 o'clock. Okay, so pretty precise. And he actually goes on. Um, I don't know if I have this here. Yeah, here we go. So they go to Amritsar, they go to the Golden Temple. And uh, he gives a rather nice uh, ethnographic description of uh, the things he sees over there, you know, the distribution of food by the Sikhs. And then, um, you know, just a spite touchy, uh, he says, in the evening we bought tickets and went on our way in a small train. So, you know, it, it's, it's sometimes very grounded. It's also possible to take virtual pilgrimages. Uh, sometimes um, you may not be able to get to a pilgrimage place. You may not be well, for example, uh, or you may have political duties if you're a, a king, for instance, or a, or a local minister. And in this case, what the Tibetans would sometimes do is to bring the sacred places to your location. And there's this fantastic cave we found in northern Mustang. These are all old troglodyte settlements, abandoned hundreds and thousands, of years, but which were then reused. Uh, as retreats. And inside one of these caves, you have a virtual pilgrimage of Tibet. So it's not just these abstract mandalas, but there are also specific things. So here, for example, you see, um, I can't remember which one this is. There are inscriptions over here, but it'll say uh, this the Buddha of the, um, the Jokang in Lhasa. Uh, this is the Buddha of the Ramoche temple in Lhasa. Um, this is the so-and-so, this is the Potala and so on. So within this cave, you actually have the main pilgrimage sites of the Tibetan Buddhist world that have been represented as uh, paintings. And, uh, you know, I thought at first it may be just a, a scrapbook of some sort, you know, a collection of holy places that the painter himself had visited. But no, uh, it is actually specific locations in the Tibetan world that are the sanctity of these places is brought there through the medium of uh, of painting. Yeah, so it's a, a condensed pilgrimage, a virtual pilgrimage. Yeah, this is uh, the protector of um, Thabo in Western Tibet. And Spiti. And so on. Uh, okay, and the next one, I won't, I haven't got that much more to say, so uh, I should be able to wind up in five minutes or so. Um, move on to tantric literature. I won't be saying too much about uh, biography and hagiography, but in tantric literature, you have a similar kind of thing um, where you can do the pilgrimage without actually going anywhere. And this is, again, the internalization of uh, the landscape. But in this case, internalizing the landscape within yourself, not inside a cave. One of the most prestigious uh, tantras in the Buddhist canon called the Kala Chakra Tantra. It's a late Tantra, possibly the latest. I think it's 11th century and it's called the, the Wheel of Time. It's also the basis of the Tibetan calendar. Uh, it comes into Tibet in 1027 and then uh, becomes very important um, for, for certain schools of Buddhism. And this is the mandala of the Kala Chakra Tantra. It's actually an 18th century, 18th century mandala in the Potala Palace. And in this text, it's got a very interesting take on pilgrimage. 
so there is this concept of the world that the, the Tibetans inherit, um, that you have Mount Meru at the center of the universe and that there are four continents surrounding it and then there are minor continents and so on. But the continent in which we live, the scapular shaped continent is uh, Jambudvipa uh, in the south, south is to the left here. So this is where we live. But the point is that this whole cosmos is present in our bodies. This is the whole point of the mandala. And it corresponds very precisely like this. So you have uh, great Jambudvipa, which is uh, the entire scheme. And the different continents correspond to different parts of the body. So that's the most general correspondence. Your body is itself a mandala. The source I'm citing here is Vesna uh, uh, Wallace, uh, 2001, who's written a couple of books on the Kala Chakra Tantra. Um, <clears throat> it gets much more detailed. So you have in India, you have these 10 pilgrimage sites, which are then also incidentally transposed to uh, Tibet. There are corresponding places in Tibet, so you don't need to go all the way to India to visit some of these places. You can go to um, their representatives in, uh, in Tibet. But you don't even need to go to these places because all these places are present inside your body. And so it goes on, you know, the different kind of secretions and, and so forth, lists and lists of how uh, all these, um, the sacred geography of uh, the Buddhist world corresponds to your body, to the extent that a certain poet, a Sahajiya poet called uh, Sarahapada, says uh, that he has not seen another place of pilgrimage as blissful as his own body. So in spite of this, um, snobbishness about um, going on pilgrimage. Pilgrimage nevertheless endures and it endures not only as an inferior type of spiritual activity for those who are incapable of doing anything more uh, subtle in uh, soteriological terms. Um, it's also something that is um, regarded as important by, uh, shall we say, more sophisticated practitioners. I'll give you some examples of these. It's understood that it can be a booster for some of the soteriological activities that you might be up to. Um, now, in the same way that the tantras themselves can be very basic, you know, the tantras are organized so that the lower tantras, as they say, the, uh, the earlier tantras, uh, the uh, action tantras, for example, they are to affect transformations in the physical world, quite simply, you know, the early one of the Tantras is uh, is for weather control, for instance, in the Mahamegha Tantra, um, Mahamegha Kalpa, actually. Uh, but then later on, as the Tantras themselves evolve, so these magical procedures, the identification with a divinity can be used not simply to effect transformations in the material world, but can also be used to help you with your uh, spiritual achievements. Yeah? So it covers the whole, and pilgrimage is rather similar. So at one level, Certain specific pilgrimages can cure certain specific conditions. And there is one uh, pilgrimage place called Chotanyima. It's a mountain on the Sikkimese Tibet border over here. You see it. And there's an article by Katya Buftri, Pilgrimage and Incest, the case of Chotanyima on the Tibeto Sikkimese border, Bulletin of Tibetology. Sorry, I've forgotten the year, um, but you can Google it. And um, Essentially, this is a pilgrimage that is undertaken if you want specifically to purge yourself of this, uh, the pollution of incest. Yeah. 
it's defined in different ways by different communities of Tibetans, depending on their uh, their marriage uh, rules. But if you have incurred uh, what is regarded as the uh, the sin of incest, you can go to this mountain, do your pilgrimage, and you even get a receipt saying that you've purged. Why? It's important to show this receipt because many communities won't allow anybody who has committed incest to live in their community because that brings disasters on the whole uh, village. You know, there'll be sort of landslides, the crops will fail, disease and so forth. So you have to be purified. You go to this mountain, do your pilgrimage, you get your certificate of purification, come back, show it to the villagers and you can be reintegrated. So this is a good example of you know, a very specific form of uh, healing. Um, yeah, and uh, now you can get bottled water from uh, from Shotenyima. This is the uh, an early label, and uh, here's one of the later labels. This one collected by the late Elliot Sperling. This one by Katya Buftri. And then other places too. So. Yeah, so Kongpo uh, Puri. Uh, we mentioned this place earlier, um, uh, a very important Bonpo mountain in the southeast of Tibet, regarded by Tibet by Bonpos as being the most important pilgrimage site for them. Um, the pilgrimage guide to this area states that even if you take just one step in this direction, uh, your impediments in this life will be removed and you will have your heart's desire. And so, you know, this is a, a kind of generic um, uh, improvement of one's uh, fortune. So it goes on. Um, it says, at all times, the spiritual value of each circuit you make will be increased to equal 700 million circuits. Yeah, it takes two days to get around this mountain. Uh, but particularly in horse, sheep, bird and monkey months, each circuit is equivalent to 1300 million. Make recitations on behalf of living beings and you will receive long life, merit, prosperity and power. Your heart's desires will be fulfilled by means of reverence according to your wishes. And then it goes on. It says, if you go there and perform prostrations, circumambulate it and make offerings, your defilements, and that includes diseases, will be purified. You will find your way to liberation in the assembly of perfected ones. And animals that visit this place will be born in Persia. So they have a much better life in Persia. So this is beneficial not just for human beings. And it's also, you know, um, beneficial as I just earlier as a way of increasing the efficacy of your um, your spiritual activities. So the founder of this little village over here, Lubrak, 13th century, um, it's a place that had been blessed by saints and then he came along, he himself was a saint and so it, in, uh, it increases in power. And according to his biography, it says he used to say that the spiritual qualities of the place were such that he could more by meditating here for a week than he could by meditating anywhere else for a whole year. So it's not just uh, to uh, improve your karma, to um, uh, remove your uh, your diseases, your, your moral stains and so forth. It can actually uh, turbocharge your, your meditation. And this, uh, just to conclude with, is something that's represented in this wonderful uh, tanka, a Tibetan scroll painting from probably the 18th century. Uh, representing um, uh, a, a rather mystical saint called Sewang Ringzen, believed to have lived in the 8th century. 
and he was a shapeshifter. He, you know, he's not very, he's not very present in the outside world. Um, and what's interesting is that you can see represented in his life the transformative power of the landscape because his form and his attributes change according to the particular holy place he is visiting. So these are representations of him visiting different holy places around the edges. This is him at the center with his consort. Um, but the text on which this painting is based actually says as follows. So when he goes to Mount Kailash, he was white in color, rode a rainbow, had ribbons in his hair, wore jeweled earrings, adopted a dance posture and played melodies on a lute, surrounded by dakinis, da da da. So that's how he was when he went to Kailash. He goes to another place, he is correspondingly transformed. Langshan Gingri, he was red in color and he rode a sunbeam. Uh, at Puring Eden, just north of Kailash, he was blue-green in colour and he rode a uh, divine eagle. Uh, Shenri Deden, he was brown in colour and he rode quick lightning and uh, so on and so on. Okay, so anyway, these are the, um, this is um, a very nice representation, I think, of the way in which it's not only we who transform topography into uh, a cultural, a religious landscape, but also the dialectical process whereby this landscape then can then act back on us uh, to cure us, to improve our spiritual pursuits and to uh, change us in, in ways that we would want. Okay, I think I've probably run out of time and I've run out of things to say. I stop.